This episode discusses violence, murder, graphic drug use, suicide, and autopsy. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. On Memorial Day 1985, 15-year-old Tyra Garcia left her home in Ventura, California for the last time. It had been a hard few years for Tyra. Her close-knit family had gone through the shakeup of her father's affair and subsequent move and his distance from the family. She was living with her sisters and brother and mother and feeling at loose ends. She'd been closest with her dad, and now she barely saw him. Tyra had always struggled in school, but she'd regularly attended and studied. Because she had a learning disability, an IEP was in place, and her sister, Tanya, tells us that teachers were supposed to closely track Tyra's progress. But, according to Tanya's memory, that hadn't been the case. Tyra's grades had suffered during her parents' breakup, and she'd had to repeat eighth grade at an alternative campus. That's why she was back at Buena High as a ninth grader, at 15. It was her new start. But with the new start came new friends. And according to Tyra's sister, Tanya, it was a very different crowd than her little sister was used to. Tanya was a few years older than Tyra and spent part of 1985 away at Job Corps training. But when she was in town, she saw changes in her sister. Tyra was coping with the upheaval in their home life in the way that many teenagers would. She stayed out late. She experimented with alcohol and drugs. She even had a scare one night, on her middle sister's 16th birthday, that landed her in the hospital. Tanya told us that Tyra, who was terrified of needles, had been convinced to let someone shoot her up with something. Tanya is still not sure what it was, and Tyra had a very, very bad reaction. When their mother found out, she made sure that Tyra entered a treatment program as soon as she was stabilized. Their family was very active in her treatment and attended meetings with her at the facility. That said, none of Tyra's siblings felt that she had a serious problem with drugs or alcohol. They felt like she was drifting and sad, caught in a particularly hard year of their lives. She'd had to break things off with an allegedly abusive boyfriend. She'd begun dating a new guy, one that her family liked, but that relationship was still new. She was like many other 15-year-olds at a crisis point in their lives, pushing against parental restraints like curfews, but she didn't fight with their mother, and she got along well with her brother and sisters. And that's why when Tyra never came home that Memorial Day Eve, her mother knew that something was wrong. According to Tyra's sister Tanya, Tyra had been supposed to go out for just a little while to make arrangements for a babysitting job and then to return home. Tyra hadn't even taken a jacket, though it could get chilly at night. But Tyra didn't come home. It would take her family some time to piece together where she was and where she was not that night. Some holes in that timeline they're still trying to fill in to this day. Like what time a neighbor saw Tyra outside in an alley sitting on a stoop when she was seen at a local convenience store, when she was seen getting into a car with two men, when Tyra made an appearance at a huge party at a local motel, 
in what order the events had occurred, and what might have finally prevented her from coming home. As Tanya tells it, Tyra was assumed to be a runaway. That assumption was kept up by law enforcement, she says, for more than a week, until a body was discovered in a nearby orchard, not far from their home. Tanya has kept news clippings from the first week of June, 1985. We haven't been able to place their precise publication details other than that Tanya says they ran in the Ventura Star Free Press. That paper ceased publication in 1994 and was absorbed into the Ventura County Star. But we have most of what we need. Dates, titles, there are no authors listed. The minutia of these papers is stored on microfilm in California and Tanya is halfway across the country now. But she still has the actual paper clippings, wrinkled and scanned, but still clear enough to read. Four small columns. Their titles? Body Found Near Road in Moore Park. Decomposed Body Found in Moore Park. Body Found. Officials identify body in Moore Park as Ventura Girl. A line from that final article, quote, The teenager's body which reportedly was wrapped in a blanket, was found Friday near Stockton Road by two farm workers. Sheriff's investigators said the body had been dumped over a cliff. As the first three article titles imply, the decedent discovered on June 8th was initially unidentified. The deceased was in an advanced state of decomposition and was described in the newspaper clippings as possibly female, though the initial investigators weren't able to make that determination. The victim had been wrapped in a blanket and bound with some kind of cord, so it was no accident that they'd been laid in that orchard. Someone had, as investigators said, dumped them there. When Tanya and Tyra's mother, Margaret, heard the story, she went to the coroner's office. It's noted in the police files that Tanya now has. Her mother reported her 15-year-old daughter missing on May 30, 1985, but she had been advised that her child was a runaway. What's not noted there, Tanya says, is that her mother was asked to wait 48 hours before filing a formal report. That's why Margaret had come straight to the coroner this time. She wanted answers. Was the body found in the orchard Tyra? The report that Tanya now has in her possession tells the story from an official point of view. Quote, On 6885, 1500 hour, Mrs. Margaret Garcia came to the coroner's office with a friend. She stated that she had read in the newspaper about the body being found and she thought that it might be her missing daughter. She further stated that she had reported her daughter missing to the Ventura Police Department on 53085. She gave a physical description and described the clothing worn the last time her daughter was seen. This investigator informed her that the Ventura police had left a copy of the missing person's report and were following up leads that the decedent might be her daughter. Mrs. Garcia was told of the jewelry found on the body and she asked to see it. She was shown two rings, a chain and cross, and two rubber rings. Mrs. Garcia identified all items as belonging to her daughter, Tyra Maria Garcia. Tyra's family now had proof that she hadn't run away. She'd been deceased for days, likely since the night she disappeared. They now thought that her case would become an active homicide investigation, but nothing regarding Tyra's case has ever been what her family expected. That's what Maria discovered when she met Tanya, Tyra's sister, last year. If you're a longtime listener of The Fall Line, 
you're likely familiar with Maria. She's the friend of and formerly family advocate for Angel Turner, the sister of Georgia Leah Moses. Maria and Angel made a podcast together about Georgia's case, and now that Angel is concentrating on her Faith for Justice initiative, Maria is doing advocacy work with two other California families. One of those is the Garcias. Tyra's case has become the focus of the first season of Maria's Cold Case podcast, No Activity. She's working directly with families to look at cold cases that are in desperate need of review and revitalization. I sat down to talk with Tanya and Maria about their work on Tyra's case and the six episodes they've made about her recently reopened homicide investigation. Or perhaps reopened isn't the right word. Her recently reactivated investigation. First, we discussed how they met and decided to put together a series on Tyra's story. I was connected with Tanya through a mutual friend, Angel, who you know because we interviewed for her sister's story on your show a couple of years ago. Angel and I had our own podcast. They called her Georgia Lee. And through that, Angel and Tanya got connected and then Tanya and I got connected. With any family that I work with, I'm not totally sure at first in what capacity they want my involvement. I am happy to tell their stories, but I'm also happy to completely just do advocacy work, which I do with another family as well. So with Tanya, it was really important for her to have Tyra's story told and have it told accurately and from the perspective of the family, which is something that had not happened up until that point. So we got connected in October of last year and immediately jumped right into contacting the sheriff's department, figuring out all the nitty gritty of the case, and then going from there. And within all of that, it unraveled all the details that we wanted to share in the podcast. There are some things that obviously we had to hold off for, you know, public knowledge reasons, But yeah, that's how we got started. Tanya, how did you feel about the concept of making a podcast? Did you have any hesitation? When I first heard about podcasts, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't even really know much about them. But I really didn't have any hesitations at all. I just wanted to get my sister's story out there and her case reinvestigated. And, you know, I got everything opened up at that point, right after Maria was involved. And I just want to do whatever it takes to get Tyra's story out there and people know what's been happening with her case for the past 37 years. So I know you talk about getting Tyra's story out there. Have you faced some rejection trying to get her story out there before closed doors in from media or getting her into the news cycle? After Tyra was murdered, the media they start writing all these stories about, you know, we found the body and then they identified her as, you know, Tyra Garcia. She's a pretty teenager from Ventura. And then it just kind of trickled away, but we didn't have any like TV attention, that sort of thing. It wasn't on any of the big, like America's most wanted unsolved mysteries or anything like that. It just kind of was our little town's issue and it went away. And nobody wanted to write about it. And when they did write about it, everything was inaccurate. They tried to say she was a runaway. 
So it was kind of hard to get Tyra's story out there or to even get any help with the investigation. So we just kind of backed off. My family did and we just let it go because, you know, we didn't know what to do or who to turn to or who to even talk to about the stuff that was going on. So it sounds like to me that you felt like though there was coverage of her disappearance, and I know there was coverage when her remains were found, and then when she was identified, there was just a serious lack of context for who she was. Yes. And then the coverage didn't start until after her body was found. We didn't get help when she disappeared. They didn't even believe that she actually disappeared. They said she ran off. And there was nothing to corroborate that as a fact. She did not run away, obviously, you know, she always calls home and she just disappeared off the face of the earth. Maria and Tanya compared the lack of media coverage and what Tanya says was a lack of police response with the reaction of their Ventura neighborhood. Maria's point here was that the difference was striking. So one of the things that the Garcia family expressed to me when we talked was in addition to kind of getting, I mean, there were a couple articles that that did express the humanity of Tyra. But again, like Tanya said, they all came out after she was found. However, there was a nine-day period where the entire community was active in looking for her and posting flyers and doing that. It's like, yes, it's great that there was media attention after, but when they needed it the most was when they had it the least. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. There are so many details and no activity that we won't go into here, especially concerning what was happening in the days leading up to Tyra's death, her interpersonal relationships, and the reasons why her family believes someone else is responsible for her death. But one of the most important topics that the podcast digs into is the ongoing relationship between Tyra's family and officials. Based on what various family members remember and have discussed with Maria and Tanya, they've always had a struggle. In the next section, when Tanya mentions a lack of questioning of her family and says a few people were questioned at the dinner table, she's referring to friends of Tyra's who'd come over to the house. My family was never, ever questioned. We were never interviewed by the police. Even when they came to our house after she was found and everything and they went through our stuff. 
And they questioned a few people at our dinner table about what was going on, but they never questioned my mom, me, my older brother, who at that time was incarcerated, my sister, Teresa, or my little brother, RJ. Nobody was ever questioned, not even my Aunt Linda. And she was really close to us. It's like they just skipped over the family. It was just kind of a crazy thing. So working with Maria and getting Tyra's story out there has been a way different experience. You know, the way that Maria is told Tyra's story in her podcast was very personal and upfront. And it was told in a way that people can actually connect with her to see that, you know, she was really a person. She was really, you know, she was loving and she was caring and, you know, she was a teenager. I think that is really important, that type of storytelling when you're trying to connect with the community and other people out there. In the next section, you'll hear me mention Tyra's memorial page. That's a Facebook advocacy center that Tanya has set up for her sister. It's where she gathers articles, posts updates, and shares information about her sister's case. It seems like you guys have a couple of jobs here. You have the job to tell a story that was never told. And also, Tanya, just looking through the memorial page that you have for Tyra, you have the job of correcting things that you feel were put out that were false. When I was looking at your memorial page, there were a few key things I found that were really important that I want to point out to our audience. And Maria, I'd love for you to jump in as well. But for our audience, to my understanding, and this was so surprising for me when I was reading about Tyra's case and listening to the podcast, was that when she was discovered, she was found wrapped in a blanket, correct? Yeah, correct. Despite this clear indication of the involvement of at least one other person after Tyra's death, there were issues with discrepancies between her death certificate and her autopsy. Her death certificate was originally marked suicide, which caused immediate issues for her family in terms of both burial assistance and obtaining information on the case. In fact, Tanya tells us that, initially, their mother was informed after three days that Tyra's case was to be closed. It was another layer of confusion and frustration, because despite that, they would receive information indicating the case was open on and off for years. Here's what Maria told us about what she discovered regarding that initial label of suicide. So when I spoke with the medical examiner, what was explained to me about that whole situation was that the autopsy and the Emmys report, they have always said homicide. They always ruled it as a homicide. However, there's a separate office, like the county clerk, I believe is what it is, that issues the death certificates. That office made a clerical mistake that the Emmy would have had to help fix. And whatever happened between that clerical mistake and the ME was that they they wouldn't change it for the family until the family got an outside advocate to help them with that. So yeah, it was on the death certificate itself from a separate office, but the refusal to change it, I don't know where the, the breakdown between whoever made the mistake and whoever was in charge of changing it was, but uh, yeah, that was the issue as it was explained to me. And how long did that take for that correction? 
a couple of days, I think it was. Even though it was a clerical error, the term suicide became associated with Tyra's case in more complex ways. And even a few of the investigators after this was all corrected and everything was like, we believe Tyra committed suicide. It was obvious that Tyra couldn't wrap herself in a blanket, move her own body, but Tanya says that the implication was that Tyra had overdosed, and possibly purposely overdosed while out with friends or at a party. Maria spoke to several officials for the podcast. Here's what she found out. So from what I gather from having conversations with people and all the research that we've done, but more specifically having the conversation with the investigator that just passed the case back to the sheriff's department, the thought about the overdose came from one instance and a couple of teenagers who were either present or knew of this instance. And we talk about it on the podcast. She had been injected And she had been experimenting with drugs per a couple of friends that had told me this, that she had been experimenting with. But this one incident that landed her in the hospital seems to be where this very exaggerated idea of her being a teenage junkie came from. And because of a few friends who were either present or knew of that situation corroborating that, that seems to be where they have stuck. And then the investigators kept saying, well, we think she committed suicide from an overdose. And but we're like, "Okay, well, how did she get wrapped up in a blanket? Well, somebody got scared. They might have been with her and they might have wrapped her up and then threw her, you know, in Moore Park, California. So, Tanya, I know that one of the things you mentioned and you said this Early on, when we were talking about misinformation in the case, it's really frustrated you. There was that mistake on the death certificate that caused issues. And you also mentioned the idea of your sister overdosing. And I know that when I first heard that from you, I thought that was something that you'd heard later on in the case. But to my understanding, that's actually something you heard early on. And this is something that I had a hard time wrapping my head around at first, because to me, at least, you have the case of someone found in a ditch, wrapped in a blanket, ruled a homicide, then to have someone who is investigating the crime allegedly say to you that this is a suicide, then this is a suicide by overdose, which is what I understand was suggested to you. Mm-hmm. And then, if I'm correct, it was even suggested to you at one point that your sister may have either accidentally or purposely overdosed and that perhaps a friend or someone who was with her had wrapped her in a blanket and left her there because they were afraid. Do do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. And this is all stuff your family heard, what, in the first weeks after her death? Yes, right after she was found. Just a note here. We have not spoken with the Ventura Sheriff's Office, as this is an interview about Tanya and Maria's work, but they are in contact with the Sheriff's Office concerning Tyra's case. In the following section, Tanya reflects on her feelings regarding her family's treatment in the early years of Tyra's case. It is not a comment on her newly established relationship, which is just beginning. As none of us have access to the full case file, we cannot know precisely what was or wasn't done. But Tanya has clear memories of how it all made her feel at the time, 
and that is what the following should be framed as, her memories of how the case proceeded. So how do you feel like this affected the homicide investigation? I feel that it just hampered the case because it made them not really want to do a full investigation. It seems to me that them thinking that Tyra was a drug addict or a junkie, whatever, they, it, they just didn't want to take the time to investigate. They were just like, okay, well, you know, we just don't want to deal with this type of thing. And we had investigators tell my mom that they had closed the case, you know, in three days. And we, we just feel that she committed suicide or she had a drug overdose and um, people just got scared and wrapped her up and dumped her. And this is from the beginning, it's been going on. It still, even the last investigator was saying these things to me with the first phone call that we talked together on. And I told him, I said, this is not correct. It's never been correct. What are you talking about? You know? And he says, well, I just, I read some things in the reports. Well, you know, I've never seen the reports. My mom's never seen the reports or anything. So we don't know what they actually wrote down in the reports or, you know, what's going on at all because they won't give us any information. I know it's hard to talk about autopsy, but it just seems important because of the subject. What have you been able to find out about what was done at autopsy? Um, well, I do have the, the two reports, the autopsy report and the medical examiner's report. They don't have any specifics, really. They do describe, you know, her that she was in full decomp and that without getting too graphic, that she was basically falling apart. They don't know what the cause of death was. And I don't know why. I don't know if they've actually looked for a cause of death. You know, obviously they should have took in the blood samples if they could, or hair samples, nail samples, any kind of scrapings that they could. And they didn't do any of that. So that, that right there puts, you know, you could have went back into that and seen if she actually had a drug overdose or not. So because she was cremated, we can't never go back and get that evidence ever again. It was a one-time thing. Tanya and Tyra's family had applied for burial assistance. The reason they had to fight so hard to get her death certificate fixed as quickly as they could because it was a Catholic organization, so they had little choice in the method. Because we don't have the full file, I'm unclear as to what is contained in the coroner's file versus the sheriff's file, but while Tanya mentions a record of items that are collected in the following section, she's specifically discussing the lack of testing of said issues, not just lists of items that might be with the sheriff versus the coroner. We don't know if she was stabbed because it doesn't say there was blood found on her clothes or if she had vomit on her or even on the blanket or anything like that. There's no description. There is no, there's nothing really. They didn't do any trace evidence or anything, even on the clothes or the blanket. I know that you mentioned earlier that there was, to your knowledge, no toxicology done. Obviously this was before a DNA, but you said that was mentioned to you by someone in law enforcement. So when I spoke to the ME's office, they said that in 1985, that it was highly unlikely that they would have done that anyway. 
and that every report that came from their office we had copies of not even a single piece of paper went to the police department that we didn't already have copies of and and then when we spoke with the detective we asked if toxicology reports were done basically he said i have the same reports you do but i'm not sharing i'm not going to share any further information about the situation my mom had an autopsy report and an AMI report and then a death certificate. And my mom did a lot of the footwork herself. And she would call the investigators and say, look, I found this out. You know, so-and-so told me this or that. My mom did have the list of people they interviewed at the time. But because my mom passed away in 2018, I don't know what happened to all that. It just got lost with you know, her moving so many times and everything. And she had to be cared for. So I asked my sister, because she's the last person that was living with my mom. And she can't find it at all. She doesn't know what happened to any of that stuff. So my mom knew all about that. I opened the case last year, through the district attorney's office, I was talking to them, and they sent me an email. They're like, we're going to open up your sister's case, we put somebody on who's going to investigate it. And I was all like, oh, okay, well, who is it? And what's the phone number? Well, he'll contact you. It was about a week later. And I talked to him for about 45 minutes. But yeah, he was telling me just all this bizarre stuff. Like I heard, I, I heard it before. And I told him, I go, you're telling me stuff that's been said before. I want to hear something new. What was, what's been going on? You know, nothing. You know, nobody's been working on the case. So nobody's actually worked on my sister's case since the early 2000s. So was it actually closed in the 80s then? You know, I don't know because they said it was closed. And then I think it was 2001. I was working and I came home to my mom's house to pick up my kids. And the phone rang and it was an investigator. And she put him on speakerphone and he was talking to us. He said, well, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm retired and I took over Tyra's case and I've been working on it for the past, I don't know, four or five years. And I found a lot of things out and we know a lot more stuff now that we did back then. I'm going to work the case as long as I can to find out what happened. And basically he told us that he knows what happened. He knows who was involved. He's lacking evidence. And that is the last time we heard from anybody until I contacted the on her 30th anniversary. And that guy was just awful. He was just telling me she committed suicide. She didn't matter. And, you know, who cares about her case? And we're not doing anything for it anymore. It's closed. And then you went to the district attorney when? Last year. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered, but we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed, 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. 
Maria and Tanya have both had extensive contact with the district attorney's office in the last year. Maria talked about some of what she's learned. I reached out to them because Tanya had told me about a possible lead, a a person that wanted to talk. And so I had reached out to them and said, hey, we have this person that wants to talk to us, but obviously them talking to us is not as effective as them, them talking to you. So what do we have to do to get this person talking to you? And who who has the case? You know, I called the sheriff's department first and they told me that violent crimes had it. Then violent crimes told me that the DA had it. And then that was how we figured out who the actual detective on it was at that time. He said he has no record of it ever being closed, and he didn't explain what he meant. Obviously, why would he? I'm a civilian. But he said after they found out more information, they took it off priority. Tomorrow on The Fall Line, you'll hear the rest of what Tanya and Maria have begun to uncover and why we think it's so important that you listen to no activity. If you have any information in the disappearance or death of Tyra Garcia, please contact the Ventura County Crime Stoppers at 805-602-8952, the Ventura County Sheriff's Major Crimes Unit at 805-383-8704, or email the No Activity Podcast. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. You can also find a link to the No Activity Podcast and to the petition Tanya mentioned. We'd love for you to listen to No Activity to hear more about Maria and Tanya's work. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. We also have occasional video live streams and blogs, which all patrons can enjoy starting at just a dollar. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feat as well, so you have an alternative way to contribute. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly donations are going to Season of Justice to support their testing and family grant initiatives.